Super Talk Mississippi media production. And now it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by J. Allen Toyota and AGJ Systems and Networks on Super Talk 103.1 FM. I hope you're having a great Tuesday and welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making coastal Mississippi such a great place to live work and play. I have a very special guest today, and uh, I'll introduce him here in just a second. But I wanted to share something with you. Um, I want to bring your attention to a post that I did at uh, the Coast View site. I did it, I think, last Thursday, and where I shared a, a conversation that Mark Henderson, uh, Mark Henderson, owner of Lazy Magnolia with his wife, Leslie, and involved in Log Linear Group and owns sophisticated radar technology, et cetera. And he's the guy who was one of the first to resign from the Coastal Mississippi Board because of sort of the situation. And I, I posted a YouTube video of a conversation he, ha- he had with our own Paul Gallo. And I thought that Paul did a terrific job as someone who wasn't close to this you know, kind of getting to the nut of um, what the issue is so that someone, you know, people across the state, legislators from across the state can get a better feel for this. And I just think Mark did a great job. And if you haven't seen that interview, I really want get, get to get you focused on it and go take a look at it if it's something that you really want to learn more about. But one of the things I like to say as it relates to Mark is that he's not alone in, in keeping, that al- keeping this issue out there, but that the fact that he's working so hard uh, he said that he's going to resign for the board, but he's not going from this issue. He's going to continue to be focused on it. and uh, But he's not alone, and and I'm not alone in my co- talking about it, nor is the casino industry. You know, As you probably are aware, the casino industry, every single leader in the casino industry in coastal Mississippi signed a letter expressing their concerns about what's happening as it relates to coastal Mississippi tourism. So what I noticed and what I talked about in this Coast View post that I did is that there's there's this huge wave that's building around ultimately raising the bar for coastal Mississippi tourism. And uh, it's important that we do that so that we can reach our potential. You know, in a lot of ways, I think we've really outgrown uh, the current approach. And so, you know, when you pass new legislation, which we did back in 2013 to create this regional organization, you never expect to arrive at the best solution the first time. So while there may be conflict and misinformation and a lot of clutter around this current issue, when you get your head above all that, it's just, you know, you have to conclude that this is an opportunity for us to raise the bar, to make some adjustments and, and move the ball forward. And I'm thrilled that there are so many people, so many people in the business community who are focused on this. Um, I've been a little surprised actually that some legislators have been spending a little bit of time trying to discuss or trying to get into the psyche of some some business leaders that we should accept the status quo. And as I talked about on the show a lot last week, that when you when you are just focused on solving the problem, you are saying that you're protecting the status quo. And when you protect the status quo, you're not really advancing the ball. And, and tourism around the country is incredibly competitive. We have to fix this and we have to get better at this. So if you're a legislator that's doing that, I, I would say just spend a little bit of time and understand who who's behind this, what the intentions are, and that we really, there is an opportunity for us to uh, fix this. I also heard 
uh, from a couple of legislators who were a bit surprised with how far along in this this dispute we were. And in some respects, I think they were caught off guard. Now, look, I don't blame them for that. The past year has been a pandemic. There's been a lot to be focused on. But the noise and misinformation around this issue has been actually kind of out there for about a year. So, you know, if you got caught off guard by that, I would say if the shoe fits, wear it. Just do some homework. Understand that no one blames you for being a little caught off guard. But get up to speed on this issue because soon uh, we'll all be working together to find um, a, a myriad of legislative fixes that can uh, help us advance the ball. And we're going to need everyone on, on the same page as it relates to that. So um, I hope that you do that. The, the one last thing I want to mention is I've heard continued repeating of some misinformation as it relates to Milton Segarum. And I just, I'll just flat out tell you that there have been some lies that have been perpetuated. So if you are on the commission and you've been perpetuating lies related to Milton Segarra, my suggestion to, to Milton is to seek, legis to, excuse me, to seek legal remedy and to set the record straight. Ultimately, that's up to him. What we're going to be focused on is moving this ball forward. And I can tell you, since Katrina, I have not seen the business community so aligned around an issue. I can't tell you how significant that is. So onward and upward, I continue to write as we as it relates to this issue. Now, I want to I want to introduce our guest today. As he is Mark Schlisting, and he is someone I worked with in New Orleans when I was working with Times Picayune and .com. He is an award-winning journalist. Uh, he's been involved in multiple Pulitzer Prize efforts while at the Times Picayune. He's written a number of really important series, like one in 2008 uh, that he co-authored uh, relating to the Louis losing Louisiana, which explains the sea level rise and the subsidence that they've had to deal with and how it's going to impact the future of Louisiana. Um, he wrote a he co-authored a series in March of 2007 uh, about the uh, the fight to save our you know the disappearing coast of Louisiana. He's been he's won so many different awards. I can I could just go on and on about that. But prior to Katrina, he wrote some really important uh, a series of stories that that spoke to the the levee system in the city of New Orleans and how overtopping could really create a problem and a, a some really devastating scenarios came out of that and uh, we're going to talk in just a second about a really interesting meeting that I had with Mayor Nagan uh, just before Hurricane Katrina hit but I could go on and on it would take me literally the rest of the show to tell you about the the awards and accolades and commitment that Mark Shustine has to this issue of uh, the environment and how crucial it is that we focus on it here in this entire region, not just in New Orleans. This applies to the coast of Mississippi as well. So without any further ado, let me uh, welcome my friend Mark to Coastview. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, our friend uh, Jeff Duncan is on Coastview every single Friday. He comes in and he talk about the Saints and so and he said, "Oh, Schleffi, he's my he's my he's my buddy. Y'all have been to some wars together, haven't you?" Uh, yes, we have, and and he's just uh, rejoined uh, uh, the the Advocate Times Picayune family, as a matter of fact. So that's that's pretty neat. Yeah, he, I'm I'm thrilled to have him there, and uh, you know I think he was doing some great work at the Athletic. Yep. But man, his voice is so much louder now that he's with back at NOLA.com, the Times Picayune, and the Advocate, and and he brings so much clarity. 
you know, I keep I keep the book Peyton and Breeze sitting right here on my desk <laughs> as a reminder of just how well connected he is. I mean, I mean, this guy has sources no one else has, and uh, he has such a deep understanding because he's been covering the Saints longer than anyone else. And you know, but, you know, I say you're, to a person, if you go across the team that you're working with, you have so many talented people, so many Pulitzer Prize winners. You have so many talented people who are sort of the best at what they do in Louisiana, and in some cases, the region. And uh, you, so you're privileged, I know, to have so many incredibly um, you know, able uh, uh, compadres that work with you in what you do. Um, so, you know, Mark, it's, it, when you look back, man, there, I, I'm, I was actually, it was interesting to me to study you and your background, how long you've been writing about the, the issues of loss of wetlands and loss of, of, of land in general across Louisiana and this region and the work that you've done to become sort of this resident expert on the levee system in New Orleans and whatever. When you look back on it, th does it feel like it's you've been doing this forever or do, does it feel like it was just yesterday that you started? Talk to me about that. Um, I, I have been doing this forever and actually predates my time uh, at the time Spicium, which began in 1984. For the five years before that, I worked in Jackson, Mississippi for the Clarion Ledger. And I remember literally two weeks after I joined the Clarion Ledger in 1979, um, I was in Pascagoula covering uh, Hurricane Frederick on the ground. Um, so I, I was at a shelter, I think it was at a school in Pascagoula, right, you know, like a block away from the water. And uh, the, the roof of the church across the street uh, blew off. And I learned my first lesson that, that night, uh, which was to always uh, crack the windows of your car, uh, because all the windows of my car blew out because they wow. were cracked, um, which was my, that was my, my my second hurricane that I went through, but the first one on the Gulf Coast. You know, Frederick um, was a Frederick was a tough one. It was a nasty. Really, it was a nasty storm. Hit. Yeah, hit, it was the wind. Hit event, Mobile. It, yeah, the wind event was for Jackson County, Mississippi. Was very significant. Hey, when we come back, we're gonna we're gonna continue our conversation with Mark Schlesstein, who is a environmental reporter. He's a he's a a levee expert. He is a coastal Louisiana expert. He's an award winner, and he's someone I worked with uh, when I was in um, in New Orleans. And he's one of the one of the renowned writers when it comes to uh, thinking about things like the the Mid Breton Sound Diversion Program that we're starting to read more about, you know, and uh, how it maybe differentiates from what happens when when the diversion of water happens when the Mississippi River gets too high, the Bonnie Carey Spillway that we all know about that created the algae bloom and whatever. Before we get to the end of this conversation, we're actually going to talk about those issues and try to maybe clear the air a little bit on some of those from Mark's perspective. But we'll continue this conversation when we come back from break. Super Talk 103.1 is brought to you by J. Allen Toyota on I-10 Exit 38 Gulfport. See all the incredible inventory at allentoyota.com. And remember, when you think Toyota, think J. Allen Toyota. 
talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have Mark Schlestein, who is a, an environmental reporter uh, who works at NOLA.com and the Times-Picayune. And um, if you go through the list of stories that he's written from Louisiana and Peril to a, a, an incredible uh, series that he wrote, that uh, our co-wrote, called Home Records. And it was an incredible series about the Formosan termite and how it was devastating New Orleans and, frankly, the entire region for that matter. Uh, he's uh, a member of the board of directors for the Society of Environmental Journalists. But when we went to break, he was talking about he actually worked at the Clarion Ledger, and one of his first like big storms was Hurricane Frederick, right here in coastal Mississippi. So you know, when you look back on on your environmental uh, reporting career, um, I mean, probably there. I mean, obviously, obviously, Hurricane Katrina is a defining event for you, both in terms of what you had written leading up to Hurricane Katrina and, of course, what you've written since. But, uh, I, mean, I mean, do I say that correctly or am I missing some other important point? No, um, it's it's pretty much true. I mean, I, I've been here since 84, so um, I, I've really been there at the very beginning of the state's efforts to start dealing with, with uh, coastal restoration. Uh, doing something about the loss of wetlands, which really did begin in 84 with uh, the approval of uh, two freshwater diversions that were uh, defined based on the Corps of Engineers' rules at that time that were not aimed at providing a lot of sediment in the area, but rather fresh water to increase the size of oyster beds um, in, in the state areas. Um, and uh, as we've moved forward, uh, things have changed dramatically in terms of the rules that you can follow and the needs. And the biggest needs right now are uh, to do something about replacing a lot of the wetlands that are being lost from uh, largely subsidence and other man-made issues um, in the past, but in the future will be largely because of sea level rise caused by global warming, which is going to be more and more a key problem. I mean, we're looking at a meter rise, three and a half feet of water um, along the Gulf Coast uh, in Louisiana, plus subsidence. So you can see by the end of the century, um, a, a lot of the areas where wetlands are now will disappear if something's not done to make sure that they're able to survive that sea level rise. Mark, when you look at it's so interesting, and maybe because we've got better technology now than we used to have, and you can help explain why we're seeing this, we're seeing these images more. It may be new, new technology, maybe that we're more focused on it, but it is rather shocking, actually, to look at some of these satellite views of, um, of the coast of Louisiana uh, over just a few years to see how much land has been lost. Um, is it, has it picked up as, has the degradation, you know, sped up or, or, or do we have more tech? Why, why do we, why are we talking well, about it more now? Yeah. Okay. So, so act, actually the, the amount of land that's been lost has been dropping off. Um, the most recent real study was in 2017, and, you know, there's this thing that you use in Louisiana, football field 
of wetlands loss. Um, it used to be uh, you would lose a football field every 30 minutes. Well, now it's every 100 minutes, okay? But there are reasons for that. One is that a lot of the wetlands that were most in danger of being lost are already gone, so they're not in play. And the other is that the state has this huge billion-dollar-a-year program of rebuilding wetlands, and they've actually rebuilt quite a bit of the wetland areas south of uh, New Orleans. So th those are... Those are key issues that are playing into this. Uh, but you're right. And in fact, I've got a story coming out this weekend about what happened with Hurricane Ida that's going to show um, the loss of uh, what we call flotant, floating marsh, uh, just south of uh, Lake Salvador, a significant amount. Not as much as happened after Hurricane Katrina, where we lost literally 200 square miles of, of wetlands south of uh, New Orleans, uh, but it's still a significant amount. Um, the, the bad part is that we've lost these wetland grasses. The good part is that it's not land, it's grasses that gr grow on the top of the water and are connected to um, the bottom by, by roots, but they've been all disrupted and uh, you know floated away. So something's going to have to be done about that. Uh, it's going to take a while to do. After Katrina, a lot of the that 200 square miles um, had to be um, improved either naturally by uh, some of the flotant regrowing that was uh, displaced then and by these state projects. And that's, that's really what we're doing now, which gets into, I know, uh, these sediment diversions are a key issue uh, involving that. So let me show you. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the floating um, wetlands because uh, literally before you started to talk about that, I wanted to, for our YouTube and Facebook audience, I was offshore in my boat. Let me, let me get that so you can see it again. Yep. And uh, this is a mat of relatively new grass, really healthy grass, but out in the middle of nowhere. And, and, it's, you know, you see these mats all over the place. And that's essentially what you're talking about, isn't it? It is. That's exactly what it is. And uh, um, uh, on the uh, West Bank levee, uh, they found quite a bit of uh, uh, this grass uh, that had been pushed forward by uh, by the uh, storm surge during during the um, during the storm during Ida. And this picture was taken, incidentally, a week ago, a week ago off of Horn yep. Island. So, you know, yeah. as the tide, you know, as that tide line moves around and you have these, you know, these eddies that just push it, just, they just float all over. And, and as you well know, they become kind of a little small ecosystem with fish that enjoy being near them and feel safe by them. And sometimes we catch blackfish and, and lemonfish near them. But, it, you know, you, you know, it's a great thing to see when you're fishing. It is not so good for the coast, for our coast, unfortunately. Right. And and unfortunately, little patches like that are going to disappear fairly quickly because they're not connected to uh, to the bottom anymore. And so they don't have the nutrients that they need uh, feeding into the grass. Yeah, uh, no, no doubt about it. Hey, look, let me let me tell you quickly about this meeting that I mentioned that I had with uh, Mayor Nagan. 
Um, we got a call. Stan Tyner at the time was the editor of the Sun Herald. I was publisher, and it was it was 2005, by the way, 2005, just a few weeks before Hurricane Katrina. And uh, it was Joe Canizero who want, he, Joe Canizero is from Biloxi. You know, he's a, uh, a leader in in um, in New Orleans, and uh, he's done a lot of incredible development work here, and um, you know, traditions being one of them. Um, but anyway. He, he wanted us to meet Mayor Nagin, and he said he was going to bring him over. And uh, we said, well, sure, we'd love to meet the mayor. And the interesting thing, though, is that I had just finished reading your series. Okay. The two, I think you wrote it in 2002. Is that right? The, the, right. Okay. Right. But I had just finished reading it because um, uh, we had just had a, a close call. I think you, you guys had, uh, had evacuated the city. It turned out to be a false alarm for New Orleans. But I was very, became very interested in studying what the impact would be uh, because I, I wasn't as up to speed on that as I needed to be. So I read your series. So we meet with Mayor Nagin. He comes over. We go to the Great Southern Club at Hancock Bank, now Hancock Whitney. And uh, uh, Joe, you know, says hello. And then Joe leaves. He leaves Stan and me with Mayor Nagin. And we had this wonderful conversation. We talk about a lot of things, where he came from, why he was mayor, the city, challenges of the city and whatever. But at the very end, I told him that I had just finished reading your series. And I asked him um, how concerned he was of, uh, of, you know, weakness in the levy system or the of overtopping and whatever. And, you know, I, and Stan would back me up in this. He sort of characterized it this way. He says, I'm not too concerned about it because the pumps are going to be are going to be fine. The pumps are going to work <laughs> fine, and that was kind of the end of the conversation. But three three or so weeks later, two weeks yeah. later, it was that soon before Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina hits, and your worst case scenario sort of played out. Um, but he turned out to be really wrong about that, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Um, and, and we did, too, because our series was basically based on the fact that the levees were too low, which which they were. And that certainly was a, a key for the flooding of uh, St. Bernard Parish. But in New Orleans proper, the problem was that the levees were built improperly by contractors for the Army Corps of Engineers. And, and they just failed, even though they weren't over top. Uh, plus, the other problem was uh, was that uh, once the water got into the system, the pumps weren't high enough, and the pump stations weren't high enough to to keep operating in that in that climate. They didn't have electricity, and they didn't have uh, the ability keeping their uh, pump operators safe. So it was a real problem. So when we come back with Mark Schlesing from NOLA.com and the Pacific Union. I want to talk, uh, we'll continue this part of the conversation because as Hurricane Ida took that path toward New Orleans, it was literally the worst case scenario sort of path. And New Orleans fared really well. I want to talk about the billions of dollars of investment that it made and how it really kind of got the system tested by Ida. We'll see you after this break. Listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. And now it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by J. Allen Toyota and AGJ Systems and Networks on Super Talk 103.1 FM. Welcome back to Coast View. One of the reasons I started Coast View is to be able to circle back with 
you know, incredible journalists like uh, Mark Schlesting from NOLA.com and the Times-Picayune, uh, just literally world-renowned in his knowledge of hurricanes and levee systems and, and you know, the coastal erosion and the challenges of a state that in, uh, in a situation where we're going to be dealing with global warming, et cetera, Mark is the man's. But, Mark, you had an interesting interaction with Max Mayfield. Why don't you tell me about that? Okay, so Max Mayfield was head of the National Hurricane Center uh, in in uh, 2005 for Katrina, and um, at four o'clock on Saturday before the storm hit, um, uh, I, I'm at my desk and I have uh, the Times Picayune publisher and editor standing behind me, and I have a a, a map showing a storm surge. Um, um, uh, potential what what might happen from Katrina based on the most recent um, uh, 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 efforts that the, the Hurricane Center was saying how, how it was going to go and it basically showed that that New Orleans was going to get a, a Hurricane Betsy flood that most of New Orleans East would flood from overtopping and we were arguing over whether or not this should go into on the front page of the paper the next morning and the phone rings and it's you know, I pick up the phone and it's Max Mayfield. And before I have a chance to say anything, he says, Mark, how high is your building? What kinds of winds can it withstand? And um, uh, the editor and publisher behind me uh, said afterwards that I turned white, um, and which I'm sure I did. And I explained to Max that, um, yes, our building was this brick block that was gonna could withstand anything and we were on the third floor and could hide in interior spaces in case the windows blew out but the windows were actually bulletproof although there were other problems with that but that's a whole other story and um he said well that's good the real reason I'm calling is I need your advice because I don't know whether or not Ray Nagin gets it, how bad this is. This is a Category 5 hurricane uh, because it was on Saturday, and it's heading right for the city, and this is the worst, you know, this is the big one, the worst one that we could ever get. And so I said, you know, uh, based on the previous conversations I had had with uh, the administration earlier in the day, I knew that they were about to have um, a press conference, and he was going to explain that people needed to evacuate. So I explained that to him, and he said, well, great. Uh, I still need to talk to the governor and try to get the governor and the, and the mayor on the same page. So I actually gave him the phone number for the, for the mansion, and he called the governor next. Uh, and, of course, later that day, Blanco and, and Nagan had a joint press conference where uh, they explained that they couldn't call for a mandatory evacuation because at the time state law didn't allow it until the next morning. But Nagan made clear, you need to get out, you need to get out now. And, and that led to um, uh, that being the, the most uh, successful evacuation in the history of the United States up until that time, except, of course, for those people in New Orleans who didn't have cars. And there were other failures that resulted as uh, a result of that. Unbelievable, unbelievable story. And then, of course, yeah. you know, the the hurricane hits and um, this incredible sort of forensic analysis of what happened and the yep. engineering issues. And one thing led to another. And the city embarked on one of the most substantial upgrades ever 
in terms of protection. And you wrote about every aspect of that, didn't you? Right, I did. And and, and the thing, you know, I, I always talk about it in the context of devil's bargain. Um, President Bush uh, got the Army Corps of Engineers and the National Flood Insurance Program to sit down and make an agreement. And the agreement was that the flood insurance program would continue to, to authorize insurance within the levy system while the levies were being rebuilt, while the Corps would agree to build the levy system to the standards of the National Flood Insurance Program, which meant that it would uh, protect the city from storm surges that have a 1% chance of occurring in any year, the so-called 100-year storm. But the thing to remember about that is that that storm has a 26% chance of occurring within the lifetime of uh, a 30-year mortgage. And it's, it's not adequate for a major city which the Corps came back and said several years ago um, in rating our entire levy system for the New Orleans metropolitan area as high risk, their second worst level of risk protection because it's not high enough to protect from storms that are larger than that. Katrina was uh, 250 um, year storm the way it hit St. Bernard Parish. It was a 400-year storm with 28-foot storm surge on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And um, on the, the New Orleans lakefront, it was a 150-year storm. So you can see that if a Katrina in the same path were to hit New Orleans today, levees would be overtopped. What they did include was what they call resilience. In other words, they made sure that pieces of the levy system won't fall apart next time. So all you'll get, quote unquote, is the overtopping, which could be as much as five feet of water um, flooding still from a Katrina-like hurricane. Um, and that's why um, the city gets that high risk rating because there's $200 billion worth of investment of infrastructure in the city that would be in danger from that kind of a storm. So there's uh, there's more work to be done, and uh, what, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, there was there was a lot of effort to upgrade the pump system, and of course when we had the energy issue after Ida, it brought another focus once again to vulnerability as it relates to the pump systems, and of course it seemed like with every storm that came, we would hear reports that this pump station was down or this one over here was having some challenges and what they could never seem to get it all on the same page at the same time. What's the status of that? Well, uh, they're moving forward. Uh, they're, they're, but there are still dual problems. Uh, the, the sewage and water board, the city finally realized that it needs to pair with energy uh, to provide permanent electricity to the pump system. The problem, though, now, post-IDA, is that Entergy has an inadequate uh, infrastructure problem with its transmission system. And it's going to need to do something to assure that, I mean, you know, the idea that you've got uh, these huge towers uh, on the Louisiana Gulf Coast in an area that has the potential of a Category 4 hurricane and they can't take Category 4 winds, I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, if they were built in Miami, 
they'd be required to meet Category 5, 150 or 180 mile an hour wind standards. Um, and they should be required to do that here. Yeah, uh, it's, it did. It did show a, a major vulnerability. Thinking that that one feeder line's coming in, feeding the whole city, and the the patchwork of of contingency plans they had to put in place in order to get the city where they are today. But by by no means where you are today was is not intended to be the ultimate fix. It's literally a patchwork, isn't it? It is, and and it's going to continue to be that way for at least a generation. I mean, we're talking a requirement. Uh, just for the for the sewage and water board for water drainage uh, and um, and uh, sewers of billions of dollars over the next ten years at least. Uh, that the city doesn't have the uh, you know it doesn't have the tax base to to cover it. Look at this path of Hurricane Ida. It was the path that we most worried yeah. about. And it, it was interesting, too, that the Hurricane Center had it sort of degradating quickly. But in fact, the brown water effect kind of kept it together as it got to the west of New Orleans. But it was, I know that it wasn't a four or a five, the one that you worry about the most. But a, a strong Category 3 taking that particular route was a good test on the system, though, wasn't it? Well, it, uh, okay, well, to begin with, it was a four when it went ashore. So um, and and then it 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 jumped over um, um, uh, the barrier island uh, headland and made its way over water again. So it, it didn't it didn't reduce in intensity really until it it got fairly inland. And that that seems to be something that is occurring more often now, again, because of climate change. Um, uh, storms are becoming more intense, not much more, but enough to be a category difference. Um, and uh, they're staying intense longer when they go ashore. So so that's a problem. The good things about Ida were that it was not a category five when it was offshore like Katrina was. So it didn't have the intensity as long as Katrina did to push storm surge forward at the heights that Katrina did. So even though it was significant, 11 feet um, you know, flooding Lafitte is a lot of water, uh, it was not that hot. When we come back, we're going to talk to uh, to Mark Schlesting from Norla.com and the Times Picayune about these diversion programs a little bit more. What's the impact on the, uh, the environmental impact statement as it relates to coastal Mississippi? We'll be back after this break. You can also listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend Mark Schlefstein. He is an environmental reporter and uh, sort of a coastal wetlands and uh, levee specialist. And, you know, Mark, as I read your, your bio, uh, I sort of knew this before, but I bet there's not another environmental reporter in the United States that has won as many awards as you. Do you know that to be the case? 
I I do not. It's not something I really worry about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I never got the impression that that's something you would focus on as well. But it it, it is a quite a testament to your your years of reporting and your your journalistic chops. That that is for sure. Hey, listen. Um, so the Bonnie Carey Spillway, it gets opened. It's uh, to avoid flooding New Orleans and downstream. And the impact on the Mississippi Sound is dramatic because this is incredibly important estuary and complex that is called the Mississippi Sound semi-enclosed body of water that is very sensitive to freshwater. We all know that. And we see what the impact of that is when you have repeated openings of the Bonnie Carey Spillway. And you can say whatever you want to say about that. But there is a, there is a lot of debate going on today about this diversion program called the Mid-Breton Diversion. And I want to I want you to sort of differentiate between the Bonnie Carey Spillway and what the uh, environmental impact statement has to say about the Mid-Breton uh, Diversion and what the goal of that is. So I'll kind of turn it over to you. Okay. Okay. So, so first of all, need to reset for a second. The, the diversion that's going through the environmental impact statement process is actually Mid-Barataria, which is on the west side of the river. Mid-Breton is not there yet. It's still in the planning stages, and they haven't begin, begun the environmental impact statement process yet. However, a lot of what's happening with Mid-Barataria will end up being applied to Mid-Breton. The differences, though, are, are that Mid-Breton is on the east side. It's a different kind of water area. Um, the, um, it's far enough south so that if this, you know, what the state contends is that the timing of when it will be open will be adjusted to assure that all things are taken into account, including requirements to open up um, uh, the Bonnie Carey spillway if that is required during during a year when you have water high enough to open up um, the the diversion. the The water going through the diversion will be going east and south, not east and north towards um towards uh the the mississippi river sound the mississippi sound so that's that's number one the state contends that um uh it, it it's not going to be a problem uh the problems with uh the spillway are significant and need to be dealt with but in the context of dealing doing something about the mississippi river's flow which may actually be helped by the the mid barataria diversion opening it up and reducing the amount of water that needs to go through the spillway or other diversions that might also end up being approved uh, in the next 10 or 15 years further up the river that would be going to the west as well. So, um it will be interesting to see how this all plays out because there are people that are on different sides of this thing. Right. Like one of the most vocal is Billy Nungesser, your lieutenant governor, and he's from Plaquemines. And talk to me about that perspective. Okay. So, so Billy used to support the diversion. One needs to remember that. Um, but he is now running for governor. There's no question about that. And, um, he has support of fishers who are definitely going to be affected by any of these diversions. And, and that's a real problem. You've got shrimpers and you've got oyster growers 
who are in these areas where the fresh water from this diversion will be occurring, and their catches are going to be affected. State has built in about $300 million worth of uh, mitigation into the project. Whether or not that's adequate, uh, it remains unclear um, and will be a key part of uh, uh, the environmental impact statement process as it moves forward. But but those are those are key issues. Um, Billy argues that what the state should be doing is mining uh, material from the river and pumping it inland. The state's already doing that. In fact, it's it's got 20 of the 25 billion dollars for the coastal master plan set aside for those kinds of projects with a portion of the rest of that going to the to the diversions. The problem is that those projects have a lifetime of only 20 years and then they begin to subside and disappear. So you need to find a way of getting uh, sediment to to add to those. And that's what the diversions are supposed to do. What we'll do in the future, Mark, I'll have you back in a, in a month or so. We'll talk more about this in particular because uh, what we what we know is in order to restore at the levels that we're talking about in a sustained way, the diversions are very critical to the solution. And uh, we'll talk more about that so people can have a better understanding of that. And we'll stay focused on this important issue and try to you know sort through it. Again, a lot of different opinions about this now. I'm hoping that we can eventually sort of get all on the same page about the role of these things and, and differentiate it from sort of the, the really devastating effect of the Bonnie Carey Spillway. But all that remains to be seen, and we'll continue to have that conversation. So anyway, Mark Shustain from NOLA.com and the Times Picayune. It's been a pleasure to spend an hour with you. Have a great day, buddy. Thank you. Appreciate it. You bet. Thank you very much. Yeah. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.